today we have a really interesting guest. Yes. This was so interesting. And I knew it was going to be, but then it got really interesting. <laughs> Our guest today, and we were recording this, like, actually after we talked to her, so we might preview a little, is Rebecca Romney. She's a rare book stealer and recently put together something we have mentioned a couple times in passing because it came out this summer. Um, a collection of romance novel, like essentially it's called the romance novel in English. And it was a hundred lot collection of romance, like first editions and other like sort of romance. Paraphernalia. Yeah. And um, it went to Lily Library at the University of Indiana. And um, she is on today to talk to us about collecting and about romance and about collecting romance. And, you know, for everybody out there who has shelves full of books, like we even talked to her about, you know, the kind of modern collector. What if they're your books right now? What can you do? It really was a fascinating conversation. It was really interesting because, I mean, part of this collection, there's so many pieces of this collection that are amazing. We will put links in show notes to the full catalog, um, which you can buy in a print edition, but you don't need to because it's online for free. You can read it all online um, at Type Punch Matrix, which is Rebecca's company where she is a rare book dealer. But one of the things that was really fascinating to me was she has a few lots that are consecutive uh, copies of category romances, different category romance lines. And she has some really interesting, fascinating um, early editions of books that uh, definitely have disappeared from most of our memories. And one of the fascinating things about this conversation was this idea that romance is such a massive genre and still scarcity exists, right? This idea that, you know, Harlequin Presents number 200 could just be gone. You know, we might not have it anymore. And that's wild to me um, that it can both be a massive, you know, there were probably a hundred thousand copies of Her- of Harlequin, sure. you know, presents number two hundred, but they just get thrown away, or you know, you know, I don't know, wallpaper to room. <laughs> and so, I think it's really fascinating, and I think there's so much to talk about why romance is a genre that is scarce, why romance is a genre that people, you know, use and toss out. Um, and I am really happy that we have Rebecca and other people who are interested in collecting it as though it is of value in the same way as, you know, literature. Or even of other genres. Yeah. And of course, we know it is of value. Right. She talks a lot in here about, you know, kind of like how how collecting starts when it's genre romance and why mystery, for example, right now is more collectible than romance is just supply and demand, right? So creating a demand for it. And so um, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Rebecca. We really enjoyed our conversation with Rebecca. Yeah. It is fascinating. I can't wait to have her back. Yeah. Um, and don't don't miss the parts at the end where she talks about how to treat your books. Yes. Um, I really loved that, too. I was, I'm in my parents, I'm current, coming to you from my childhood bedroom, <laughs> and um, I'm in my mom's house, and I was looking at her bookshelves, 
um, yesterday, and they have a lot of old books in this house, and I was noticing the way the spines, the tops of the spines all look. And, yeah. Uh, Stay tuned because you'll understand what I mean after you listen to the to the recording. But thanks to Rebecca Romney for joining us and for sharing with us and for talking to us about her work. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. <laughs> I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. I change it up a little every time. You do. It's you. It's, <laughs> I haven't decided It's Scorpio yet. season. You're allowed. It's Scorpio season. My time has come. <laughs> Without further ado, here is our conversation with Rebecca Romney. Why don't you tell... You have, like, a really interesting... Like, you've been on TV. I feel like that's a little sexy. Um, <laughs> you know, you've been in, like, documentaries. I was looking at your your website today. So tell us about um, how you came to be a rare book dealer. I became a rare book dealer entirely by accident. Before I saw the job opening, I didn't know that this was a career that even existed. I just assumed that, you know, rare books, book collecting, that was all part of some elevated, rarefied, fancy environment that I didn't belong in, right? And so when I saw the job listing, I almost didn't apply for it at all. In fact, um, I thought I wasn't qualified. I thought this wasn't for me. And it was my mother who said, you know what? Don't pre-disqualify yourself. You should just apply. She was right. I got the job. And uh, as is typical in the roadbook trade, you generally get training almost like an apprenticeship because there aren't any degrees in rare book selling, right? And so I got the training after I was hired and that's kind of how everything started to fall into place. I truly had no idea that this was a thing I could do. So like, what was the company? I mean, was it like Sotheby's or yeah, like... It was, a, it was a big, large company. So the name of the company is Bowman Rare Books. Um, okay. And B-A-U-M-A-N. And they are based in Philadelphia, New York. And they were opening up a gallery in Las Vegas. And I had just come home from abroad, and I was sort of in between about where I was going to go next. I had plans to go to graduate school, but the timing was off. And so I was just looking for a job in my home base, which was Las Vegas, because that's where my parents lived. And I saw the listing. That's how it started. So I was part of the group that opened that gallery in Las Vegas for this larger rare book firm that was sort of national firm. That is so cool. So do you, when, I mean, it feels like rare books. Wait, wait, listen. Okay. I know you're going to say something really serious right now, but can I tell I'm you one of my not. favorite Elizabeth Bowles <laughs> is called, it's about a, it's about a Las Vegas, it's called Rarities Unlimited. And I forget the name of the book. It's like running scared and she's like selling rare stuff. And then like there's bad guys. And I just want you to know that you're a romance heroine. It's amazing. Look at you. I need you to read that. Lowell job. <laughs> You have an Elizabeth Lowell job. It's real. I have to admit that I'm a sucker for any books that take place in the rare book world. I love it. I love those books, and including romances. Like, for romance, it's rare book trade or uh, rare book on the institutional side. I am here for it. I think she's actually selling, like, gold or something, but all the rest of it. Whatever. Let's pretend it's books. Gold books, I think is what you mean. Gold (laughs) books. That is a thing. Those would be real heavy, but fine. (laughs) So can you tell us like some fun facts? Like what's the rarest book you've ever like touched? (laughs) And what's the most expensive book you've ever touched? 
Yeah, I can tell you. Let me see. What I, what can I say? How do I answer or this? Or anything fun. Like, just fun yeah, stuff. The fun stuff. Yes. I mean, the thing that tends to get a lot of attention is things like handling individual leaves from the Gutenberg Bible, which was the first substantial printed book in Europe. It was by movable type and all of that. Of course, all of this technology existed in China like a thousand years before Europe. But in terms of the European and Western cultural revolution that happens afterwards, this is a really critical moment. And these books are so rare that you can't find complete copies of them on the market anymore. You only find individual leaves. So that's the type of thing. The most expensive single book that I sold in Las Vegas was a first edition of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, which is, wow, you know, wow. Well, so that's, that's a real, that's a book. That's, that's a real book we've heard wow. of. <laughs> well, and so this is the thing is, is that gallery was really heavily focused on canonical works and really standard serious. Like that was where all that came from. And mm-hmm. I always felt very awkward and out of place there in my personal reading because my personal reading skews genre. So, you know, I, I actually really love books like Moby Dick. I do like them too, but it was not very popular to talk about (laughs) science fiction and fantasy and romance in that environment. And is that because um, in these environments, the people who are buying these books are, what's the, what's a person who buys, you know, one of these canonical texts is, is this somebody who buys it as an investment? Is it, are they super duper book lovers? Like what's the yeah, there's well, rich I mean, people with money. I can think of many texts. In fact, I have emailed you about a text that I am looking for, and it is not a canonical text um, <laughs> that I just want because I'm a huge lover of that author. But you know, does anybody really love Newton? Is that like is anybody well, like so a real Newton stan? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there are stands for everything. That is one of the things I've learned as a book dealer. And it's one of the things I love about it is because everyone has their thing that they are so passionate about that they can talk about. They can rant about to their friends and family. And as their friends and family's eyes are glazing over, they they are just still moving along with this thing because it means so much to them. And that's what you see in book collecting across the board, right? These books themselves... They don't have intrinsic value on this market. This is a secondhand collectible market. The value comes in the emotional weight that Mm -hmm. we give these objects as symbols. And so that is a huge part of what you're seeing when you see big prices for something like Newton. Like that's a real before and after moment in how we conceive of the world, right? (laughs) Right. Um, But this is also really relevant, though, in terms of how romance, for example, dovetails into the book collecting world about what is conceived of as important and worthwhile and worthy of preserving and worthy of talking about as having a history. These are the the themes that I think are coming up more and more as people are like me, you know, and like you all are kind of getting to the point where like, no, no, no. We care about this. It does have emotional resonance to us. We are going to focus on it. We are going to talk about that history, and we're going to collect it. So we have talked on a number of our Trailblazer episodes about uh, this book, the romance uh, novel in English, and it is your. this is your catalog from a collection that you have put together. And I wonder, um, we've kind of in passing talked about it on the podcast, but it would be really great if you would introduce the collection to everyone and explain its genesis. And um, we have lots of questions about 
yes. how and why and which and everything, but <laughs> give us the kind of top line. What is, what is this? Okay. So that catalog is a record of a collection I put together that spans essentially the history and development of the romance novel in English, uh, starting in the 18th century and capping at 1999. And the idea of that catalog was to put it together in a way that it would immediately serve the needs of a rare book institution for research for scholars and for teaching and for developing a model for collectors or a at least a starting point for conversation. Uh, so, you know, it is there were kind of multiple purposes here. The main audience was an institution to actually sell the collection, which was a sort of a gamble on my part, yeah. you know, sinking money into this and, and hoping that I can sell it. And then the other part of it is I could have done that sort of behind the scenes and just, you know, pulled my institutional contacts and said, here's what I have, let's talk. But I wanted to create the catalog and, you know, I, I published it online for free. You can get the hardcover limited edition, which is like fancier, but the online edition, I wanted that available specifically as a way to support, if affirm and encourage other collectors in romance. Because the collectors exist, and it's just that they have not gotten a lot of love in the rare book sphere. And so this was meant for me to be a little bit of like a smoke signal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, we're putting up uh, my flair to say, hey, yeah, you know, let's let's have these two worlds come together, essentially. And what brought you to this? I mean, were you a romance reader that wanted, you wanted this personally? Yeah, so one thing that you should know about me is that I'm incredibly rebellious by temper. I'm very contrary. I'm the type of person like you tell me, you know, to go left and I will go right <laughs> to prove that I can. And the context that that is important within is that the rare book trade is incredibly masculine in culture. Mm. And essentially, I think about 85% of rare book businesses in the major trade organization in the United States, the ABA, are owned by men. Wow. And there are many, many women working in the rare book trade, but in terms of who are in leadership positions, this is very relevant. <laughs> and it also affects things like what type of material is actively bought, what is offered to collectors, what is offered, offered to institutions, what we put in catalogs and say is not only important, but worthy of taking up space in our catalogs. These are all statements. And when the rare book trade is overwhelmingly male with an overwhelmingly masculine culture, there are aspects that tend to be de-emphasized or overlooked because they don't appeal to certain types of people, the people who are making the decisions. Is it safe to assume they're also mostly white? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I just throw out there that other thing seems I, I mean, obvious. I will say there is, um, there's a really strong tradition of um, Jewish booksellers, and there's a really strong tradition of queer booksellers. Um, Besides those two demographics, you're looking at um, New England, Ivy League educated, for the most part, um, white men. And, you know, any, any deviation from that is considered underrepresented in the trade. And this has all sorts of implications across the board. And um, I think that a, a, a catalog like this is meant to be a statement in that context to say, you all are missing something. 
everyone should know I was a like a beta reader, I guess, for the catalog, which was a real thrill. <laughs> um, but there were some really interesting like facts that like sort of brought that to light. And one of them was, and I think it was, and we I'll say it again if I got it wrong, is like Georgette Hare also wrote like mysteries. Yes. And even though she is like the foundational for many people, sort of of like the Regency and of a, like a certain kind of historical romance. Her mysteries routinely sell for way more than pristine copies of the books that we think of as foundational to romance. Mm-hmm. So I love that that's the example you brought up from the catalog with Hayer because it's a perfect example of how bizarre the supply and demand equation is. So in the secondhand market, in the collectible market, things the prices are not determined by any sort of set price. They're determined by how scarce is it and how much do people want it. Mm-hmm. And with Hayer, you know, a lot of her early romances are quite scarce, but the demand is not as high as for the mysteries because there is a much stronger tradition of buyers on the mystery side and the mystery genre than is currently the case in the romance side. Which is so interesting because you bring up scarcity. And one of the things that we talk about all the time with romance is that these books were literally designed to be thrown out. So in history, these are incredibly scarce texts. They are? I mean, I know because I'm looking for this very particular book. And and I feel like it should be, there there probably were 800,000 of them printed. And they're gone. But... It, well, the ones you see, too, are read to death because yeah. these books get They're read. beloved. Right. Yeah, so, they're yes, favorites. When favorites. you're looking for something that's beautiful, you know, beautiful condition, because that's what you're thinking for a collector's item, like, that makes it even harder. And one thing that you see with the scarcity thing is that because there are so many books published, when you have the category romances, mm. when you're talking four, six, eight, even 12 coming out a month, then what happens is you do see a type of flooding in the secondhand market that people don't understand because the the overwhelming amount of material actually belies the scarcity of any individual title. So mm, there's certain right. books that can be really hard to find, and because people are looking at it and not differentiating, they just say, oh, that's a lot of romance, and they don't see that. Well, for example, I mean, there. Uh, I want to talk about every single. We should just have you things. on, like I know constantly, and we'll just ask you new <laughs> questions every time, because I want to talk. I mean, one of the most fascinating things uh, in the catalog is that you have an arc of Lord of Scoundrels, an early right. readers' edition of Lord of Scoundrels, but you do not have a first edition of Lord of Scoundrels. Yes, which is bananas, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So one of the reasons that that happened is because arcs are generally pretty decently described. Like if you are selling one as a dealer and you don't even care about romance, you're still going to call it an arc. Mm-hmm. But a lot of dealers who are handling romance secondhand are not going to care enough to yes. differentiate the printing. So I actually bought a lot of Copies, copies of Lord of Scoundrels? Yes. Same. <laughs> I won't buy right. a lot of copies, right? Trying to find that first printing, but none of them are identified, so it's this complete crapshoot. One day, I will magically find a copy if I keep yeah. buying them. It'll be at right. a tag sale. <laughs> yes, but in the meantime, you know, the arc was properly described, so it was findable. Yeah. And until That's the verbal market sees that there is money there and that it's worth taking the time to take these seriously on the collectible market, they're not going to describe them as collectibles. And so we're in this weird place for that. Yeah. When you say you 
bought a lot of them. My, are you doing it the same way we do, which is, you know, you go on eBay and you just sort of, <laughs> because That's I'm what looking I do. at well, these categories. The other thing that the category romance collection in this catalog is unbelievable. Okay. I have the a lot idea. of questions about yeah, how you got 1500 Harlequin presents together or whatever, right? 625 love sweats, probably the one that I'm looking for with that weird secret baby ending. <laughs> and the- <laughs> Take through all 600. How do you do this? So those two are great examples of collections that came almost entirely intact from a single reader who kept them over decades. Wow. Amazing. and, and, And think about what that means for people who have been invested in romance, who buy the books and they keep them and they matter to them. The person who did that for these collections, it's now in a rare book institution. They're in the right. Lily Library in Indiana, and they're going to be studied. Her copies, because she's the one who was like, and I'm not going to throw out one of those. No, it was, um, it was one of those situations where it was like, um, I think it was her son who had them. And it was like, oh. What am I going to do with these? And I was like, let's talk. <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine opening like a closet and being like, my grandmother collected. And I'm sure so many people have done sure. this. Sure. Well, and I think that so many, I mean, there are lots of apocryphal stories about like stumbling across a whole set of something at a garage sale because, again, the assumption is that they're worth nothing. And so here's the other thing. Despite there's a lot of really interesting stories in the catalog. And when I read, when I read it, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about like my experience of reading it. Um, the, I don't, if I have the, the item description was next to the physical description of it. So there's sort of two things that happen with every book. So there's like the, the, this is the book and why it's important and meaningful, but then also like the actual physical description, you know, foxing or whatever. I don't know if people know what that is. You can describe it better than me, but in the actual printed copy, and I think in the PDF, all of the book description stuff is at the end, but Listen, don't sleep on these book descriptions. So, for example, <laughs> there is a first edition of of Beverly Jenkins' first novel. Oh, it's actually Indigo. Okay. It was Indigo. Okay, right. It was Indigo. Number two. That, right. That she had written an inscription and dedicated, like, this was the book she gave to her husband. And then there's this, like, she redacted that page and then wrote in, essentially, I guess, it sounds like a description of what, you know, kind of why it was gone. And I've got to tell you, like, I just think that's such a beautiful story, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this was the book she gave to her husband, and now, but she kept what she wrote to him private. And I've got to tell you, I found so much, like, the, you were like, don't worry about reading that, but it was real, some, there was some really fascinating stuff in the actual descriptions of the items themselves. Yes, the Beverly Jenkins copies, specifically the reason I didn't include that tidbit in the primary description was to respect that aspect yeah. of it. I didn't want to make a big deal out of it because that was not why right. it was there. Yeah, and right. so I was including it as part of I have to, in my physical description, I have to include all of that. And, you know, it is something that must be recorded. But at the other hand, respecting yeah. her wishes... <laughs> Um, yeah. Even I mean, she didn't say explicitly about that, but it was something where I just felt that that would be a better balance 
in right. terms of respecting. It's very hard for me as a rare book dealer talking with and dealing with living authors. I'm much more comfortable with dead authors. <laughs> right, say. I bet. Newton was a jerk by his book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so like the story has meaning because of its like the the history of romance, but individual items also have meaning. And I think that's what was so fascinating about reading the catalog itself was that you get this picture of both of those things. Mm-hmm. Yes, I really wanted to tell stories from a number of different angles, like not just the sort of overarching story of the history of romance, but in individual cases, I'm looking at these books as historical artifacts. And what yeah. clues can I find in these physical copies themselves that we can you know, learn from, that we can find something really interesting that will take us down a new rabbit hole, you know, that can lead to other types of research. That was a big part of it, is a sort of the book historical, book collecting. We are grounded in the objectness of right. these. So there are a hundred lots in this uh, this collection. And I'm curious if you could talk a little more about how you choose 100 out of a lot of books. (laughs) It was so hard. I bet. (laughs) There were, I mean, I will say that um, there were a lot of books that I would have included if I had only been able to find them. Mm-hmm. So I talk in the catalog, and especially in the early material, I really wanted something by Eliza Haywood. That wasn't going to happen. really wanted Francis Burney's first book, Evelina. That wasn't going to happen. But even for more modern books, um, I have in there Sweet Savage Love and Wolf and the Dove, but I don't have The Flame and the Flower, the and the Flower. because I, similar to Lord of Scandrels, had bought a billion copies mm-hmm. and could not find. They were all like 81st printing and the thing that's really frustrating about that one is, of course, like a month after I published the catalog, I found one. Oh, <gasps> sure. <laughs> I mean, I was super happy, but on the other hand, like, oh. <laughs> and so scarcity definitely played a part. You know, this isn't an academic exercise where I'm just talking about books that are important because they are important. I had to find them in order to talk about them. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there were other items that were included, not necessarily because they were inherently super important, but because they were indicative of some other point that I wanted to make. And uh, that was a, the, the the reason for including a number of things that individually I wouldn't say they belonged in any sort of like romance canon, um, but it was important to start that conversation and to encourage others to, you know, run off down that path. And right. we, even when we talk about books, like sometimes we choose a book as, you know, this is an example. It's not the exemplar. And I think that that makes sense that especially since you have to come up with the actual object, right? That seems, and I would also say anybody wanting to read this, I, there were like romances I've never, especially the category romances, things I had never seen before, right? Like really cool stuff. Like I was like, look at these, this is amazing. (laughs) Those weirdo American historicals or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that is kind of why those I have those American regions in, in there, which are just like an aberration. I could not explain yeah, them. Right? <laughs> oh, there's another thing. What was it that I just included because it's just so unusual? Oh, the Finding Mr. Wright series. So <gasps> yes, that category, yeah. it was so short-lived. It was like, I don't know, like nine issues or something. Right. The first book is amazing. 
<laughs> it's about a woman who writes feminist columns, and she ends up right at the beginning getting, uh, essentially, she breaks up with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend can't stand her feminism anymore, is how it kind of sure. starts. And sure. then it ends with Who a, among us? Exactly. Like, <laughs> very relatable, right? <laughs> and then it ends with a sort of really nice affirmative discussion of them being childless by choice, which you do not expect in a book from the early 1980s. No, no not at all. Amazing. Yes. So That's there are things so cool. like that. They just, the more you dig into it, the more you find things that you weren't looking for and that you didn't expect. When we wrote the Rita's, the last Rita's ceremony, the final Rita's, um, we did a lot of this work of like trying to figure out who the who the first. I'm sort of air quoting first, but these like early important texts, and we discovered I discovered Encanto then, and you talk about so Encanto was published by Kensington, and the books were both in English and in Spanish. And my understanding is that if you literally flip the book over, so the, the book was a category and it read, you know, front to back in English. And then if you flip the book over, it read front to back in Spanish, the same book, which is so cool. <laughs> right. But you couldn't find, I've always been like, where I want to see one of those and you couldn't find one, right? They are very hard to find. The reason in many cases that there are only a few examples of some of these is because I couldn't find more than a few examples. As in a collecting environment, you know, the impulse is to be a completist. Like I have the entire, you know, first year of Encanto or whatever, and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, Yeah. no. And so instead it was like, here, here's the most I could find. And that was meant to be an additional statement of scarcity of, okay, these are the ones that I was able to get the whole series. So these are findable. But mm-hmm. these other ones, you know, I looked for five years and I was still not finding the full series. Yeah. Wow. But that actually is a good example. So then Canto, there was also a series done by a small press publisher, um, Tango 2, which came out and it was meant to be sort of Latino, Latinx romances. And that came out the year before Encanto. And Mm -hmm. I had never seen any reference to it pretty much anywhere. Not any scholarship. I'd never heard of it either. Not any chatter, right? It just didn't really have a footprint that I had noticed. And the only reason I came into contact with it was because of that material that is also a lot of the romance collector who collected promotional materials for romance yes. from the 80s. That Amazing. stuff was awesome. Yes, and it was going through that that I was like, wait a minute, what is this? I just had a <laughs> notice, and I was like, all right, I have to figure out what that is. And that's the thing I love so much about collecting is that it just takes you to the next thing, and it just mm-hmm. it, it takes you on this like adventure. You really don't know where you're going to end up. I kept thinking as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is in there. Oh, she should know about this. <laughs> no, I just feel like, I feel like this lot, this, this collection could just be expanded on forever and ever and ever. Well, the thing about lists is that, like, they kind of inherently encourage argument of, like, why didn't you include this? Like, why did you do this book of theirs instead of the other one? Or And so I like that. I mean, the whole point is, you know, to start conversations. And, you know, if anyone disagrees with what it shows, like, I would love to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you do hear there are these legendary there are these legendary books that, or items, when you were talking about collecting romance novel paraphernalia, um, you know, Lisa Klapis is notoriously on the book um, dumps 
for her her earliest historical. They dressed her up in period costume and took pictures of her, and she's on the book dumps, which are, for listeners, um, when you go into a bookstore and there's, a like, a cardboard right. um, shelf unit, and it's filled with all the same book, and it usually has the branding of the book on top. That's called a book dump, and it, you know, is indicative of a big book from a house, from a publishing house. Um, to Lisa's was lost in a flood, and she had one in her basement. And I, it's one of those things where I just, I wonder, I feel like somewhere, <laughs> someone, someone has, has a Lisa Kleypas book dump somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, and you're listening, Lisa wants to buy it from you. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> there is, it does develop into a lore. And I think that's part of the, the fun of it is it becomes this kind of treasure hunt. Especially, yeah. you know, the lower the stakes are, the more serious we get about it, right? So there are things, you know, it's a, a tiny bookmark that you want. And you're like, I must have it. I must have it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and with the, like, the wide world of the internet, it does feel like, how can I not find this thing? If I can't find this thing on the internet, it doesn't exist. And I think that there's, that's clearly not true, right? I mean, and so it really also feels so, like, divorced from technology, right? It's really, like, this object is important if we can find it. I mean, how many of us have bought old copies of Whitney, My Love, on eBay, hoping that we get one that had the original text instead of the new text? And, I mean, I must have bought 25 before I got one that had the original text in it. So... Yeah. It does take a certain type of tenacity to be a collector. Weirdo. Are you going to say weirdo, Rebecca? <laughs> Listen, I, I call myself an eccentricity enabler. Like, you have nice. some weirdness that I am here for you. Reading the catalog is really interesting. One, So we've talked about, like, the objects, but you also really tell a really compelling story of, like, romance itself. So what, I mean, you clearly did an amazing amount of research, and then, you know, each uh, each item or lot gets a description of sort of its importance, its historical context. So, you know, you said you were working on this for five years. How much of that is, like, are you writing things once you get them, like the research, like kind of talk maybe about that part of the process? Sure. So the there are two reasons that it took as long as it did. The first reason was just finding them. <laughs> Yeah. And giving myself time. And I could have, frankly, continued to wait, but I decided at a certain point that I just needed to publish and then I could, you know, keep moving and keep building on project later. But the idea being that I couldn't just keep hoarding it all to myself. I had to move it along and see it, see it on its way. Uh, But the other thing about that was spending the time doing the research and tracking down sources for these because it was difficult in some cases finding anything written about this. And this is related to the, you know, the same problems we're talking about in the book collecting world and how things like romance might be perceived, the same problems you see crop up in uh, academic scholarship. It's very difficult for scholars today even to um, get funding and support for research that focuses on romance. And that has real effects in terms of what scholarship can be produced, right? And so in some cases, you know, I'm trying to track down the bibliography of something and there are, there's nothing written about it. No one's ever talked about it before. And I have to just sort of piece it together through all these clues. And it really does feel like you have the scraps of a manuscript that you're very like puzzling back together the pieces. And some of these took a lot of time. Um, one of the books in there was um, 
So it was Love Comes Softly, which is, you know, essentially, yeah, exactly. This is the book that, you know, is often considered the thing that made people realize inspirationals as a subgenre could be viable, right, in the mid 20th Mm -hmm. century. And there is nothing written on the bibliography of this. And I bought copy after copy, and each one of them was like slightly different because (gasps) it was such a popular book. I love this story. I read this and I was like, this is bananas. Yeah. And, you know, I finally figured out how to, how to identify a first printing. But the thing is, too, I started seeing it wasn't just the first printing. It was suddenly like I could identify like the first 10 printings because, you know, one had, you know, an icon on the spine, but the icon changes. And then Bethany House versus, you know, the, the like the, 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 the different changes that the publisher mm-hmm. goes through. And so, you know, tracing those is not only just kind of like a fun thing, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But it also is it becomes the way that you learn about these things that you didn't expect. You're like, oh, that's what happened to Bethany House. That's why that publisher became a big deal. Oh, that's what was going on with distribution. And that's why these romances suddenly became very, very popular. It's like, oh, when they were distributed in Walmart. And you start seeing these patterns yeah. that you put into the larger picture, which is gets back to your question about process. So I didn't really write the catalog until a few months before I okay. was thinking of publishing because I knew why I was picking each one and I kind of had my thesis and and the idea behind each one. But I knew that the more I collected and the more I put it together, the more each would inform the other. And the catalog is very self-referential, right? right? I have like, I'll say, I'll make a statement then I'll say C item X, Y, and Z or whatever. And that's because there are so many connections and you can see that this wasn't, none of these were produced in isolation. They were part of a wider context, right, that they're reacting to and that they're being inspired and influenced from. And so it was important to me to capture that as much as possible and to pull those disparate threads into, you know, really a weaving of what the history looks like. It's very cool. It's so, yeah, you guys, this is it's super fun. It's very cool. <laughs> I'm not that far from Indiana. I think I'm just going to have to Yeah, go down wait, there. so let's talk about selling it. So we so you put all that you put this thing together and then you found a home for it and talk about that process. Yes. Yeah, so that was an interesting process because I sold it actually much faster than I expected to. Yay. That's wait, great I, news. I, I know. I know. <laughs> I was I was shocked because it was the type of thing, you know, I had um, I had created the catalog and I was actually speaking about the catalog to a conference of rare books and manuscripts librarians. And so I put the PDF online in advance of that. And it was in the process of doing that panel that a few people read the catalog. And one of the people I was on the panel with, actually, Rebecca Bauman, who is a um, curator at the Lilly Library, so they were on the panel with me and when they had read the catalog they were like listen i need you to hold this for 24 hours <laughs> and she oh wow they, or sorry nice. and and what happened was they spent less than 16 hours i think total to okay this enormous purchase of thousands of volumes and 100 lots and it was the fastest I have ever seen an institution okay anything. And I'm saying that, like, I know I know that's very, like, braggy, but the thing is, I want to stress how surprised <laughs> so I cool. was by this. Oh, 
I was going to say, that sounds incredibly fast for a major learning institution. (laughs) You know, I have to definitely thank the advocacy of Rebecca Bauman there because they believed in it from the beginning. And, you know, they had kind of seen my progress in it. And it was really gratifying to see the response from the Rare Book Library side because even though the Lily snapped it up, I ended up having a number of conversations with other curators from Rare Book institutions and, like, big rare book institutions who were like, we want to expand our holdings specifically in romance. Where do we start? What do we do? Wow. That's so cool. Yes. And so to me, I, I just felt like, okay, well, at least, you know, these, some people are listening. I don't know that people in the rare book trade are going to listen, but there are people at institutions who see. It has to start somewhere, right? So this is my question because obviously, I mean, I'm on the record for being somebody who like wants to buy books that are, that I love and, and and build a collection of, you know, I don't care if anybody ever wants to buy them from me, but build a collection. So I guess the question that I have is twofold. One, relating specifically to this collection, why did you, did it ever occur to you to sort of say, oh, well, I'm just going to go out to, you know, people who I think would be interested in collecting rare books in romance? And then the second piece is how, if you are somebody like that, how, what do you do? How does this work? Yeah. So part of what I wanted to do with this is to start exactly this conversation for people who are interested in the idea of romance collecting to suddenly take a step back and be like, oh, whoa, I could really do this. Because that is the moment that I referred to earlier on in my career when I didn't know that being in the rare book trade was even a thing. And then I had this really transformative, truly life-changing moment where I was like, oh no, I can do it. I I, I can just jump in. (laughs) And that is truly what you can do. You can just jump in. It's okay to make mistakes. No, enjoy the process. Like truly with collecting, the process is the point. The hunt, the adventure of it, the learning new things, that is the point. And so the main thing that I would say is don't do exactly the thing that my mother told me not to do, which is like, don't cut yourself off too early. Don't sell yourself short. Like, don't worry about, oh, well, I don't have a great collection. Oh, I'm not really a collector. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. If you are into this, like, just jump in and explore it. And you don't have to create, you know, a world-class collection. All you're looking to do is do something that makes you happy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a romance reader, you completely understand that. Like right now, the goal, I mean, if you can come across a first edition of Lord of Scoundrels, you should stamp it up, everybody. But that like the best collections start with people following like their own passions and interests, right? So if you're going to start your collection now, it doesn't have to be things that are rare. It could be things that like, is there advice for people who maybe can only buy like kind of books they love now? Are there tips about how to store or keep books? Maybe things like that. Yes. So first of all, I will say that there are a lot of books that are very interesting to collect, you know, if it's your thing, they're still pretty inexpensive. Um, There are, for example, one of the things that I've been building up as a personal collection is the Gothic romances published by Ace, these paperbacks in the early Mm -hmm. 1960s. And these are the sort of women running from houses genre. (laughs) Right. And Mm -hmm. there were a, a bunch of different publishers, but Ace 
bragged about being the first in gothics, and they are the ones who published the Phyllis Whitney book, Thunder Heights, in paperback, and that blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I specifically collect Ace, and I specifically only look for copies in great condition, and I am limiting myself to um, average of only $10 per book in terms okay. of my cap. And all of those boundaries, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like a sonnet, right? You have the boundaries in order to create a challenge, right? And that's just, actually, it's the same in romance, right? Like mm-hmm. you have certain structures that actually allow you to really get into nuances and to really explore individual aspects of it. And that's what I found in, say, focusing specifically on ACE and focusing in an area where people haven't really run into yet, stood out of houses. Um, But this is the same when it comes to modern material. I really encourage people to think about collecting not as this sort of acquisitive capitalist angle, but instead this is a, this is an exercise in mindful, thoughtful acquisition that actually doesn't have to be about exchanging money at all. Like I, one of the things I do as a, in the trade is I judge a book collecting prize. And some of the winners of her book collecting prizes have built up collections that didn't cost any money at all because they were found material or the material that they got in trade. And an example of that in the catalog is those promotional materials from that collector. She wasn't paying for those. She was just writing authors and asking, do you have any like spare bookmarks left over from your recent recent book and they would send them to her and then they'd send her these like chatty letters and she kept the letters with them and so that was something she wasn't spending money to do that so you know I really push back on the idea that you have to have a lot of money which I think people think about when they yes. talk about right Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica that's what we think about when you think about collecting but those headlines I think belie the real the real vivid complex beautiful complications that you find in collecting, right? A lot of collecting on the ground does not work like that. It is all of us just allowing ourselves to be weird. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So in terms of when people are concerned about rare books, one of the first things they do is like, oh, I don't want to touch it because I don't want to hurt it, right? Right. But books are engineered to be handled, (laughs) Right. True. So as long as you're taking a few very, very basic precautions, you're fine. Um, first of all, you don't need to wear gloves when you're handling books at all. In fact, you tend to lose your tactile sensitivity. You're much more likely to tear a page, oh. which would do much more damage than, you know, washed and dried hands that are handling these pages. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the main point of weakness on a book is the joint where the, the covers, the, the front and rear covers, meet the spine. And that's because, you know, that's just physics. That's where the angle is hitting. That's where the pressure goes. So what that means is that you just don't want to splay your books open when you are, you know, reading them. Yeah. Or if you have a book, like it's a hardcover and you are opening that up to, you don't want to slam it all the way to the left so that it's like against the table. You want to kind right. of hold that front board up. And the last thing is the thing that's probably the least intuitive, which is that, you know, when books are on a shelf and they have that nice little nook at the top of the spine that you use to pull with your finger down. Sure. Don't do that. Oh. <laughs> That's like the one thing, yeah. Like, the because that is a weak point of the book, like, there's not a lot of reinforcement there. So the more you do it, the more likely it is to break off. You know, again, if you do this, people are doing this for hundreds of years on a book that starts to break. 
And so those literally, you have done, that's That's 98% of what you need to know. And in terms of storage, books are like humans. We don't, we don't like extreme heat. We don't want to be in attics all day or basements or garages all day. We don't like, you know, extreme heat, extreme moisture or extreme exposure to sunlight, like no direct sunlight. Truly the best place to keep your book collection is like in a room where you are all the time in your library, in your bedroom. We're already doing that, romance readers. <laughs> We're keeping them in our bedroom, next <laughs> no, to really. on the floor, yeah, next right. to our bed. <laughs> you know, people will write to me and they'll be like, oh, we have this book that's been passed down and it's been in our garage this whole time. And I'm like, oh. Get it out of the garage. Throw it out. <laughs> keep it in your living room. <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. So... Uh, this, so I, I guess, okay, I'll ask the question, which is, so the collection ended in 1999. Is this something that, like, I, I guess my curiosity is, like, would you do another one? Or is it really that, like, it's too soon? You don't know what is, like, important or meaningful or interesting, like, kind of in 20 years. Like, how does the, how does that kind of work? Yes, the cutoff for 1999 was partially for me to maintain some control over the, (laughs) the incredible explosion that happens in the 21st century, which, you know, is kind of another topic entirely and how exciting it is with things like self-publishing, ebook publishing, all of that. And, and the effects of that, that really changes the game. And so part of it was recognizing that there's a tipping point that happens with the internet, with different types of communities that we see on the internet, with different types of distribution and building different kinds of fan bases and being able to sort of work around gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those have such huge effects that it really becomes a different game. And so that was part of it. The other part of it is, as you say, feeling like 20 years is really kind of, I think, what you need to start looking at things retrospectively instead of feeling them in the moment. Like, I think this is really silly, but, like, my daughter is into 1990s fashion right now. They (laughs) all are. Yes. They all are. So this is a thing, right? And, and (laughs) of course, I find that absolutely ridiculous because having lived through 90s, I'm like, that was the worst fashion period. No. uh, (laughs) uh, Nobody wants that look, but it is back. Why would you do that? Scrunchies, why would you go there? I don't understand. <laughs> we killed them for you and you brought them back. <laughs> we did you a solid. Right. We we knew better. We know better. And now you're going back. I understand. <laughs> and so I, I feel like there's this odd cycle. Like there's a certain point when we start seeing things retrospectively. And we yeah. start, mm-hmm. that changes our relationship to them. And I think that in some ways that creates new problems of bias because we give the the sheen of history so we may not be, say, as critical, for example. Um, Or, on the other hand, it gives us the distance that we need to see those disparate threads I was talking about of, oh, at the time, we may not have realized how all of these, like, explosion of category romances were interacting and why it happened the way it did. But looking back now, we can see that buildup of movement in the 70s and how it all just exploded. It's like right in the 1980s, in 1980, really. The golden age of category romance. Mm -hmm. Those were good years. It is a wild time in the early 1980s. Well, there was all sorts of stuff going on. There was there were gay gothics and, you know, historicals that were totally different and cool. And 
I mean, that was also because so there were so many more publishers then. Right. Everyone was diving in. Yeah. Everyone was diving in and there the was a feeling age. because there was so much money there, people were looking for ways to differentiate themselves on the market of, okay, well, you know, this person, you know, they, they've Cygnus got the Regencies covered and, you know, Harlequin's doing their contemporaries that are slightly sweet, but getting a little racier. What can we do to di- differentiate ourselves? And so there are a lot of really, f- there failed series in this era mm-hmm. too. Yeah. That are again trying to do something that was unexpected and it didn't work for them. <laughs> um, one of the things that I tried to track down and could not find, um, there is a great book about the history of publishing in Romance and Zero by John Markert. And he talks about um, right in the middle of a series, they actually pivoted to a line they called Adam, which was from the hero's perspective. Mm. And the Ooh. argument was that it didn't succeed because no one wanted that. And now, of course, we feel like, oh, you have to have a hero's perspective. But in the 1980s, that was the reason for the failure of that line. That's really interesting. It's interesting because we've talked about that, that like there's a hero POV that comes in and romance changes forever. Well, in one of our Trailblazer episodes, we talked about like hitting the wave at the right time Right. And I feel like that's the thing is like some of these lines that don't work didn't hit the wave at the right time. Right. Like they were too early or too late. And it's really fascinating also to see something that like now we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, of course. And that at the time it was too much. That's really interesting. That is really what you get when you give a, give yourself a little bit of distance. Yeah. But that's also where it can kind of become interesting for collectors who are focusing on what's coming out now, is there is a sense of betting one's own taste against, you know, what will yeah. end up being important. You're like, all right, you know, no one is as excited about this novel as I am, but I think it's really important, and I've got my signed first edition, and, you know, I'm going to be proved right in 20 years. Everyone's going to look back at this as a moment. You know, so there, nice. you can make it a game if you want. It That's is cool. funny that you say that. I mean, I think about all the re- the readers who in my, li- in my lifetime as an author have approached me at signings and asked me not to sign to them, but like, please to sign the first edition. Like, and then they put it back in their Ziploc bag. You don't have to keep it in a Ziploc bag, Rebecca says. No, please Um, don't. In fact, you need air circulation. But I do think about like, where are those, those libraries must be massive. And they are like somewhere there are more than a few people out there doing this. So for the people who are doing that, I love you. I see you. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, of course, I want you to read books, too, and I want you to be part of the active reading romance world. But this is a different type of book love. These are related types, but they are not the same thing. And I appreciate you for that type of book love, about understanding these as historical art objects and valuing them for that reason. I'm going to tell a funny story now. Kelly, my best friend, would kill me if I didn't, because when I was a kid, I... And now, of course, I'm like, what happened to these books? I was a real early adopter of Sweet Valley High, and I had, like, the first 30 of them. But I was like, people borrow them. But, like, I was like, you cannot crack the spine. Like, I had some real specific, like, look, these are precious items to me. And I feel like I worked a long time in my life to kind of get over that. Like, it's okay. Books are for reading. (laughs) But there are definitely moments where I just think, like, I like this thing. This is a good thing. Okay, so first of all, I have to say that we are at 
the and my robot company we're working on a themed catalog right now about Gen X material and we want Sweet Valley High for it. We cannot find Sweet Valley High in the first printing. Wow. It's like impossible. Well, so, mine are gone. I'm sorry. No, I, I mean I guess that's my mom, but I don't I think they're gone, but I would have been your collector with the first 30. I mean, I know at least three people. This, I mean, I always connect Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club in my head because I went immediately from one to the next. Um, but I know at least three people who have all the Babysitter's Club books saved, like on shelves, precious. And I had them all. I had so many things. I had all so those love sweats. And then life <laughs> happens, yes. Well, the yeah. other thing I was going to say is that, you know, collectors on the sort of private collector side, they do tend to be against signs of use and ownership, but that's not really the case with institutions. Institutional Mm. rare book people love events of ownership because just like authors are like, okay, reader response, like how, how, how are people reacting to this? I mean, I guess now with Goodreads, we're kind of flooded with all of this. However, you know, think back about, you know, a great book in the 19th century, like when people are reading you know, Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte. Wouldn't you love to know what the average reader was thinking when yes. Pride and Prejudice first came out, mm-hmm. right? And so actually collections of romance that have ownership marks, like sometimes I've seen ownership marks that are like a, a particular reader's grading system of yeah. like stars or <laughs> particular numbers, right? Those are incredibly interesting from a research institution perspective because it is it is both sides of the equation, right? You're getting the sort of publisher side, but then you're also getting how the book is formed in the mind of the reader, how the reader is reacting to it. And that is, you know, part of the study of the book. Well, we've talked about this on the podcast, I think, but the marginalia of romance novels, the the way this is a very common thing in libraries and public libraries because readers um, the covers and titles are very similar right. um, for many of us, and readers read voraciously, and they need a way to track the books that they've read. Or this was back before Goodreads; they needed a way to track the books that they read, and so they would mark the backs of the books with their, you know, their insignia, little. their little <laughs> like hieroglyph. And then um, in my library, you would put an exclamation point very respectfully at the bottom of the page on the last page. And that meant this was a good one. Yeah. And so you would just flip to the back of all the books and take out the books that had the most exclamation points, which is, you know, pretty great. <laughs> that is <laughs> We're so all great. Secretly talking to each other. Right. Yes. Before. Wow. It's like a yeah. code. Well, one of my favorite things I wanted so bad to include in the catalog, but I didn't get to because the owner wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> yeah. Was it was a lesbian pulp paperback. And it is in this era when um this queer romances were pathologized, right? And that was absolutely part of the framework of this pulp. And so it ends, and they're still together, but it ends with this sort of like very um, sort of dark premonition of this can't be good kind of thing. And a reader wrote right at the end of that, quote, but they were happy. Wow. And the reader was like, no, I'm not listening to you. I see them. They were happy. That's what matters. Oh, I love that. That's so nice. I know. <laughs> like, you guys, romance oh, what is what a fun best. job you have. That's a pretty fun Way job. Way more fun than my job. <laughs> <laughs> a 
listen, we both have things that seem very glamorous on the outside, but in fact are a lot of tedium no, it's when you get down job. to it. <laughs> this is really this a delight. Amazing. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Um, we adore your book. We've been bringing it up with tons of our, our trailblazers because many of them have been in it. Yeah. So we're feeling really good about ourselves. <laughs> that we've picked the right people. Um, but we're, honestly, I'm so, I'm just so grateful for your your project. I mean, I'm grateful anytime anybody gives... Takes romance seriously. Yeah, gives, so. gives romance what it's due, so... I am glad to see how accepting people have been of it because it was the type of thing where I was working so much in isolation on the rare book side of just feeling like... Anyone I might bring it up to in the rubric trade just kind of raise their eyebrows at me. And I just very quickly realized, okay, I'm just going to put my head down and get this done. And I had no idea what the response was going to be. And so it's been really, I have to say, like, really affirming for me to see that people care about it. But that also sort of proves the point of, like, there are a lot of people who are already collecting romance and already care about this. And it's just a question of us all getting together and being like... Right, we do rock. Like, <laughs> grandma collecting is awesome. You know, we're doing this, do a romance collecting thing. Like, I would love to have a book fair of just romance collectors. That would oh, be yeah. amazing. Yeah, that'd be cool. Well, I want to go back in time and tell my younger self to keep my Sweet Valley High books. So <laughs> we all want all the things, don't we? <laughs> Rebecca, if somebody wants to go visit this collection, can they? Yes. So the Lily Library um, is very good and responsive. If you want to come see, you can do research and know it's being actively used for teaching collections. Rebecca Bauman is the great contact there. Um, they're a curator. We'll put that in show notes so that yes. people can... She's on Twitter, right? Yes. Okay. Arkham Librarian, that's Rebecca. Um, so it... It is meant to be accessible. That was one of the things that was important to me in terms of the placement. And their pitch was very compelling in terms of how they were going to use it. And I do hope, though, that we see more things like this keep happening. There are, you know, of course, there are places like Bowling Green that have amazing romance collections. But their romance is so big that you mm-hmm. can have amazing romance collection in a single institution and it's only the tip of the iceberg in terms oh, yeah. of what can be covered. So, you know, I want to see this more like across the country, lots of different places that people can visit and people can keep building on this momentum that's going right now. Amazing. Cool. Thank you so much. Rebecca, it's real joy to have you. We hope you'll come back. We're going to we're going to have more questions next year yeah. after <laughs> spending more time with the with the catalog. Listen, I would love to come back. I am also telling you how jealous I am as I'm listening to these Trailblazer episodes. <laughs> you have no I'm idea. Like, We've talked to some real... They're so good. <laughs> yeah, it's been, honestly, it's been amazing. It's yeah. What's cool about it is every single conversation starts off similarly and ends up totally different from all the others. It's magnificent. Oh, I just love it. And and it's important too, you know, yeah. having these oral histories, you know, just as I was saying, when I was looking for material about like, okay, who's written on this? Where are their, right. where's their documentation about why this happened the way it did? Like it is so few and far between. And mm-hmm. so something like this and the Black Romance History Podcast yes. is doing similar things, right? Like mm-hmm. these oral history interviews are critical to us building that structure of what the history of romance looks like. 
we need to do with they're sort of the prioritized transcripts but that doesn't really mean a lot because it's transcripts are very low on my personal list of things to do but they <laughs> i know that they have to be done because they really are right for many of the people that we have talked to or and or it's going to be the only time they've talked about it publicly so yeah no and i in fact i mean i i think i'm mentioned to you because I was like, well, you should know. I think I sight faded mates and like one of yeah. the <laughs> like I use podcasts as sources for the catalog. And that was in and of itself kind of meant to be a statement of like, you know, this is a resource. There's so little there there th- for a genre that is so incredibly massive. I mean, has to be one of the largest out there. It's just amazing how little we've been how little attention has been paid to us. So we're super excited to have you, Rebecca, yeah, <laughs> on our <Yeah>. team. <laughs> and if you're ever like, okay, I have no idea what's going on with this book. Like, why are they charging X, Y, and Z? Or like, yeah. is, is, like I, I will be the book whisperer for you. Perfect. <laughs> you well, this is not just go step by step. Did you spend a lot of time talking to mm-hmm. authors? No, I only reached out to a few, mostly because I was like, I wanted to stay. Um, away from living authors. And even when I was doing it, I was like, I'm going to stay more on the publishing side. Yeah. And so I more relied on interviews that they had done elsewhere. Right, right. But right. you got Bev's. You got Bev's. Yes. And then did you reach out to... Yeah, she was like a special exception because yeah. I had already had kind of a relationship with her on Twitter and she, you know, has experience in libraries. Oh, right? and, of course. Yes. And so, you know, we had had conversations about her archive, for example, and I was like... You know, listen, and a big part, actually, you know, you know, one of the reasons that that ended up happening that way was because I could not get first printings of her earliest novels on the market. And I was like, listen, this is what I'm doing. And I cannot issue this without having something from you in it. Do you know anyone who might be willing to, you know, like they can sell it to me. Like, I'm not just going to say they have to give it to me. Like I understand and anyone who might be willing. And this is the reason it's going to end up in an institution. Right. And she was like, well, I have the copy that's been sitting in my office for 20 years. And I was like, you don't don't have (laughs) to do that. And she was like, no, it's fine. (laughs) Wow. And I was like, gosh, yeah. I mean, that's just how amazing she is. She's so bad. Did you, I mean, I do, I will say, I know Loretta and she's a historian and I don't know if you reached out to her. You probably did. I did not. I did not. I tell you, I, I just, I, she, well, I would say if you did reach out to her, I would imagine that if she had one, she would let you have it. So one of the things that you have to be kind of careful about as a dealer mm. oh, is I that bet. people kind of, yeah, if I'm in, a, if I'm like in a position like Steve Amidon was at Bowling Green, right? If like you're an archives, you're an institution, like there's this sort of inherent nobility to it. Oh, right. Right. So it's, I want to buy your thing so I can sell your thing. Exactly. Right. But I'm yeah. a dealer. Like I handle filthy lucre in, in exchange <laughs> yes. for these amazing works of art. And so yeah. I did, there are a few things like I wanted to get a run of um like romantic times um like yeah. a real big run and so I tried reaching out to Catherine Falk that did not happen and I also tried to fair to Kerr and I had a whole back and forth with the editor of fair to Kerr and when I explained what it was she was like we're done here <laughs> like wow. she didn't want to you know and so that's the thing as yeah. a dealer is yeah. that um people 
see it inherently as a, um, a sort of conflict, I think. And mm-hmm. I try, that's one reason I try to be very careful about approaching authors. Yeah, and sure. I approached Bev because I already had a relationship with her. Right, right. But to contact someone out of the blue and be like, sell me no, your books. I just think you have a great yeah. vibe. I feel yeah. like <laughs> you don't seem gross. We, we, we support you. Oh, well. I'll oh. be like, Sarah McLean says, Jen Program says. Yeah. Have you listened Sarah to Sarah McLean says, I don't seem gross. <laughs> Jen says she's awesome. Put it on your business card, Rebecca. Yeah. Trust the vibes. Trust the vibes. 100% vibes is what we yeah. say. Well, okay. hopefully, like, the catalog itself kind of serves as a little bit of a CV yeah. of, like, I promise yeah. I'm not a terrible person. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't seem it. There's, I think, a lot of ways in which I could see why romance, like, people would be skeptical. Like, wait, what are you even talking about? This isn't how we think about ourselves. I mean, I can see that disconnect being something that's going to take a while to... People get uncomfortable with that. Yeah. But on the same... uh, The flip side of that is once dealers are paying attention to us, it does give us more credibility. So, you know... Well, so that that is, like, the inherent tension, right? Is like, the more... The higher the prices go on these romance novels, the more it kind of actually has this weird reflection of reputation and authority, right? Mm-hmm. And so why should a, you know, James Clavell book be so much more valuable than a Widowist book? Like, explain <laughs> that to me. <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> Well, listen, a couple days ago, Sarah was all twerked up because she was Googling how much these books were worth, and she was, like, outraged. And I was like, okay, calm down, Well, here's why. Because in the catalog, it says that the Pride and Prejudice Prejudice. cost is worth more than the rest of the catalog. Yes, you're backing into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out, like, how much... So, and I mean, I'm, I, I, so I Googled how much is a first edition of Pride and Prejudice and I came up with like, I think it was like 20 to $30,000. Oh, it's and, way more than that. Way more oh, than good. that actually. Okay. But this okay. makes me feel much better. Okay. <laughs> listen, listen, like it still is not a great scene yeah. because no. what that says is that Austin has been, you know, accepted into right. the canon. Austin gets to stand for the entire rest of the genre right? And no one else gets a lot. It's the Smurfette principle, right? Of like, we've got our one woman, we're good here. Uh, That's the representation, you know? And so, you know, part of doing this entire cat, like there are a lot of books in there that were given, you know, single lot treatment, full page image, you know, just as big of a treatment as Pride and Prejudice got, but that are, you know, probably $10 each or $50 each. They're not very expensive. And that was also, again, sort of in reaction to the book trade, a statement of like, yeah. I'm valuing these the way I'm looking. Yeah, amazing. Jane Austen, the way that you see Austen and Bronte. I'm also doing this with Jane Ann Krentz. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, it's the money part of the equation is really sensitive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dealers can, or, you know, dealers will put a price on a thing and sometimes authors are like, what? Or they see a copy that was like inscribed to a friend that the friend sold. Or yeah, something. You right, know what I sure. Mean? Like, That's tricky. It yeah. is. It is. It can be really delicate. And so I generally try... But that happens in used bookstores too. It's not just <laughs> That's dealing. True. That's <laughs> the second hand market. I have a everywhere. very good friend who inscribed a copy of her book to her best friend and then she was in the, the used bookstore in Katy, Texas. And it was in the bookstore. The copy she had inscribed to her friend who lived down the street had dropped it. It was an ouch. (laughs) I mean, I get that, like, you don't expect your friends and family to, like, read your books. Like, (laughs) I 
But it still hurts. Yeah, like you couldn't drive it to another town. (laughs) Or just recycle it. Like just like nobody needed to know. You needed your dollar for it. Memory hold that. (laughs) No, and so it's just an awkward thing. I mean, the main thing that would make more sense when I've been thinking about is like, well, you know, talking to authors about their archives and making sure that they're doing that, you know, and encouraging people to collect. Well, maybe you could come back. Maybe we could have another episode with you and, oh, maybe Lil, maybe um, Rebecca would come on. Oh, too. Yeah. Oh, oh, they would love and, to come on. And then we could talk to you both about the value of authors and and yeah. uh, readers archiving. Yeah, that's their cool. stuff. That would be really fun. Probably not this this season, but that sounds like a really You've got fun a lot going. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot going. We're we're all full up. Yeah. So, but it was so much fun. Yeah, it was amazing. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, we hope everybody enjoyed that as much as we did, and we would love to have Rebecca back on. So, I guess if you have more questions, go ahead and put them on Instagram or Twitter, and we will tag her. She's you know, I'm sure she'd be happy to come in and say more. Let's see. Sign up for Sarah's class this coming weekend. Um, Thank you. That's going to be amazing. Uh, let's see. If you are interested in stickers, merchandise, or other Faded Mates gear, you should check out our website, FadedMates.net. You can find us on Instagram at FadedMatesPod and on Twitter at FadedMates. Have a great week, everybody. 